Um, I want to get right back into uh, the series that we started last week that is called The Rebuild, and uh, just really excited for the ways in which God is speaking encouragement to us as his church. You know, we talked about last week, um, there's a reality that surrounds us that it's just in, it's in our face. The church is not as strong as it used to be. It's not accomplishing what it used to accomplish. And, and for that purpose, we need to rebuild, all right? We need to get back to the foundation of what are the things that we absolutely need at the center of what God wants to do? How can we be a part of what God wants to do building into the future? And uh, we took a look at Ezra, and uh, next week, we'll, or two weeks, we'll be talking about Nehemiah. But the reality is that during that time that the Israelites lost their city, they lost their temple, they were taken as captives to a foreign land, and as we talked about last week, it was Ezra and the people of his day that were like, listen, we're supposed to be the people of God. The people of God should be reflecting the goodness of God, and and we need to do something about that. We need to go to a place and begin to do the work that it takes to rebuild for God so that we can, we can display his goodness to the world around us. And so they go, they start the work, but then we, as we discovered last week, they faced some opposition. Anybody ever face any opposition in your plans before? Two of you, amazing, I'm so happy for the rest of you. Um, but even in the midst of opposition, they saw God's continued hand provide for them. And, and, and so through this whole time, they're waiting. And then suddenly somebody someday says, no, we're doing this. We're rebuilding because God called us to do it. I want to jump into that today. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 5, uh, which you can follow along in your own Bibles. We have pew Bibles that you can read. Um, they are in the same New Living Translation, which I'll be reading from. You can follow along on our screens. Basically, we're giving you options. There's no reason not to follow along, is what I'm saying, okay? Uh, so, so hopefully you can do that. But I just want to jump into this and exactly what is being spoken during this time, why the rebuild gets going again. It says, at that time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, responded by starting again to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and helped them. Just as a pause side note right here, how many of you feel like you stumble over biblical names when you're trying to say them and read them? Can I give you a word of advice? Just say it like that's the way it's said. All right, and everybody else in the room will be like, oh, you could pronounce it Zerubbabel, and everybody would be like, oh my gosh, it's, I always saying it wrong all these years, it's Zerubbabel. All right, it doesn't matter, okay, don't get hung up on that. All right, here we go, verses 9 and 11, let's just continue here, because a letter gets sent to the king because of this. They're like, we need to involve the higher-ups here, we, we need to tattle, okay? And so here's what happens. He writes this letter to this king, and it says, we asked the leaders, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? And we demanded their names so that we could tell you who the leaders were. This was their answer. We are the servants of the God of the heavens and earth. We are rebuilding the temple that was built here many years ago by a great king of Israel. You know, we kind of hear this. I I mean, I never served in the military, but they tell you, if you're taken captive, you give your name and rank and that's it, right? And they're telling, this is what they're going for right now. Give us your name and rank. Who are you? Who gave you permission to start this work back up? Who told you? And do you know what their answer is? It's not a biblical name that we can't say or can't remember. Their answer is this. We are the servants of God. That's who we are. 
We're the servants of God. We're doing what God told us to do, and that's all we are, and that's all we're ever going to be. And I want to look at that this morning, because that term, servant of God, can I be honest with you, is something I feel like we have grossly overlooked in, in Christianity today. What it means to be a servant of God. In fact, there are some of the concepts of this that probably make us a little uncomfortable. Um, and if you want to really see that at a, a full extent, go and read Luke chapter 7, verses 7 through 10, where Jesus is talking about his servants, and he says, suppose one of my servants comes in from the field, and he's tired, and he's ready to sit down. Well, And he says, can I sit down and, and fellowship with you? He says, no, first you have to go and cook me dinner, and then you can rest. And this is the way Jesus is talking about servanthood, his servants. And, and can we be a little honest with ourselves? I'm like reading that. And I'm like, whoa, God, that's a little mean. Like your servant worked all day long and you're just like, okay, well, go make me dinner now. Like, I wouldn't talk to my wife that way. That's mean. But this is how Jesus describes it. And we can see this. The, the apostle Paul, he said over and over again in his greetings to the churches, a servant of God, a servant of Christ. Jesus in Matthew 20 verse 28 said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. This concept of being a servant. And here's the reality of where we sit in our world today. Because if we're going to rebuild, we need to understand what's gone wrong, okay? And like I said to you, I love to build and play with things. I work on my house, my cars, my motorcycles. Sometimes I work on them just because they break down. Sometimes I do it for fun. But in order to work on something, you have to know exactly what's wrong with it, right? Can I confess to you? This is terrible. One time, I thought I had a blown head gasket in my car. And I replaced the head gasket only to find out that what was actually leaking around the tailpipe was my rear heater core, which I could have fixed for a dollar and 75 cents. I was furious, okay? I poured hours and hours into ripping this motor down, putting a new head gasket in and putting it back together. And what was really wrong is a little piece of plastic that I just needed to replace to fix the whole thing. We need to have a good diagnostic in order to go forward to fix what's wrong. Can I, can I tell you there's something I'm seeing in our culture today, in Christianity today, that must be addressed for us to rebuild. We are far more excited about what God has done for us than we are for, about what we can do for God. We are honed in a million percent on that. God did this for me. God did this for me. We've even heard, you know, people try to correct us in this reality. God is not a genie. We don't rub on our Bibles and pray for things, right? God, will you do give me? God, will you do for me? God, will you do for me? But this concept of servanthood that we can see scripturally that Jesus used even of himself, it, it makes us a little uncomfortable. And, and in biblical imagery, they're kind of talking more about what we might refer to as an indentured servant. And, and here's what that looks like. During biblical times, people who couldn't provide for themselves, didn't have their own home or didn't have the wealth to care for their families, they would go to someone who had those things and they would surrender themselves and say, will you provide for me, provide for my family, take care of me, and in return, I will be your servant and I will serve every need that you have. And this is the imagery that the Bible uses to describe us as servants of God. But here's where we get off. We've started to really look at what God's going to do for me. We've lost sight of God's calling me to be a servant. Even though we see repeated in Scripture, Jesus said it himself, I'm a servant, I'm a servant. When he's calling people to himself, he prays over them and then does what? Sends them out. Go. 
The time is go and do the work. His last words in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go into the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. You have a work to do. I have called you, commissioned you. I have given you the gifts and the abilities to go into the world and be a servant of God. And it makes us a little uncomfortable. But church, this is a reality that we have to take hold of. Yes, well, I mean, I don't know if you remember that song years ago, if you guys ever heard it, I am a friend of God. You guys ever heard that song? I am a friend of God. We like clap and everything. When we used to clap, I don't know. Yes, we are friends of God. We are friends of God, but beyond that and above that, we are his servants. He has called us, purposed us, sent us into the world to do something significant for his glory. And too often, we're hung up on this idea of what's the next thing God's gonna do for me? What's the next thing I'm gonna get from God? God, I need, God, I need, God, I want, God, I want. God, will you, God, will you? When the reality is God's calling us to a place of surrender where we can give him everything. And you know, there there are a few things that we're really excited to give to God. How many of you are excited to give God your past? Right? How many of you are excited to give God your sins? Your failures, your flaws. God, you can have all of that. Take that. Yeah, good. Okay, you took care of that. You're so awesome. God's like, well, can I have the here and now of your life? Uh, okay, well, I'm a little busy, but yeah, I'll pencil you in. I can do a few things here and there for you, God. Like, and, and then God goes a step further. It's a little audacious. Can I have your future? Whoa, God, my future? That's a lot. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with all of that. Yeah, I know, but can I have it? And that's what it means to be a servant of God is not just to allow him to relinquish the brokenness of our past, but to give him this present space and say, God, do what you will in me today and you can have my tomorrow and my next week and my next year and my next decade all the way until the day that you return. It's all yours. I give it for your glory. I want to be a servant. I want to be a servant. This is the answer that these guys give. How dare you rebuild the church? They're like, well, we're servants of God. We had to. He told us to. It it wasn't like we had a choice in this. He said, do it, so we did it. We stopped thinking about the opposition. We stopped thinking about whether or not people would be okay with it. We just said, we're gonna obey God and do what he's called us to do. And here's the amazing thing that happens is we begin to see God do something awesome to break down the opposition that they're facing during the season of rebuilding. We talked about this a little bit last week, that there's opposition to the things that we in the church are trying to rebuild. Personally, in your lives, there is opposition to things that, are, that God's trying to call you towards and the things that you want to accomplish. And I want to show you something in Scripture that is repeated time and time again to show us exactly how God takes care of these situations. One of the easiest places you can see it is in Exodus 14, 14, all right? And just to give you a little bit, bit of background here, all right? The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God miraculously calls them out of that. They leave, they go out into the wilderness, they come up to the Red Sea, and it's a big mass of water that they can't cross. They've got an enemy bearing down on them because after they leave, Pharaoh goes, oh no, I'm not losing my slaves, go get them. And they go down and there's this whole thing going on and they're, they're all, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? The enemy's coming. There's water here and an enemy there. Our back's up against the wall. What do we do? And here's exactly what God speaks to them in Exodus 14, 14. Will you read this with me? It says, the Lord himself will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. This other translation says, just be still. Just be still. You know, what a temptation. And 
can we, <laughs> I'll be honest for myself, I don't like this plan from God. I don't, all right? I'm standing here next to my buddy. We got the water behind us. We got an army coming. I can hear the sound of hoof prints, the dust from chariots and army men flying into the sky. And my buddy's over here going, do you see this? And I'm just supposed to say, it's all right, God's got this. My friend, hey, they're getting close. Like, it's getting serious. God's got this. It's fine. But can I tell you, we see this time and time again throughout the Old Testament of what is God's battle plan. And here's the thought that we've kind of lost in the midst of this, is that in Scripture, when God wages battle, he makes it about himself and not about us. We have this instance here, right? They're backed up against the Red Sea. God says, don't worry, I will fight for you. You just need to be still. You just need to be calm. What does God do? He opens up the Red Sea. They cross over on dry land. They get to the other side. They're safe. The army comes in and God just collapses the waters. And without picking up a single weapon of warfare, God destroyed the most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time. I'll take care of it. But that's not the only place we see it. Fast forward a little bit. You go into the, the book of Judges, okay? And we've got a man named Gideon. You ever hear of the man named Gideon? Israel's being oppressed by the Midianites and God says, Gideon, I want you to go and I want you to free the people of Israel. So Gideon goes, all right, I'm gonna raise up an army. And God, you know, does it with God. 32,000 army men show up, right? You're Gideon, you're like, <laughs> God goes, hmm, too many, too many. Ask who's afraid and just send them home. I don't know about you, but war sounds scary to me, all right? So like asking who's afraid, so Gideon's like, okay, God, anybody who's scared, go home. Over half the army leaves, right? Gideon's like, well, that's, that's okay, that's okay, we're good, we're good. They're going out, and God looks at the numbers again, and he goes, mmm, too many. I mean, if you're Gideon, you're just like, God, are you serious? Are you serious? God whittles his army of 32,000 men down to 300. And he goes, that's about right. That's about right. Why? He tells him point blank. He goes, if you go into battle with 32,000 men, you'll win, but you'll come out on the other side of it and you'll say, look what we did. But if you go into the battle with 300 and you win, you'll have no option but to stand back and say, look what the Lord has done. Fast forward a little bit. Israel's up against another enemy, right? A man named Goliath. We'll, we'll wage a war here. Just your hero and our hero. We'll fight each other and the loser will serve the winner. God's like, I'll send a little boy. And Israel's like, uh, what? And David's like coming up and he's like, probably his voice hasn't even changed yet. And he's like, I'll get this guy. <laughs> right? Well, let's just be honest. He was a little young boy. I got a slingshot. <laughs> Who is this guy to defy the armies of the living Lord? Yeah, it's funny, but you weren't there. You weren't there. Why is it that that's God's way of doing warfare? Because time and time again, he just wants to prove it's about him and not about you. That the Lord himself will fight for you. But here's what we started believing. We'll read it again in our modern current translation. The Lord himself will fight with you. 
Oh, God will fight with me. It means I've got to do some fighting. I've got to gear up. I've got to get my stuff in line. I've got to get my weapons of warfare. I've got to get my plan of attack. And God will just bless it and he'll be at my side. <clears throat> time and time again when we look through scripture, when people began to trust in their own ability, they failed. In fact, if you go into 2 Samuel chapter 24, you'll read something that seems to like make no sense at all. That suddenly David says, I want to take a census of the nation, right? And the reason for doing this is because he wants to know, how many army men do I have? What is the, what's the level of readiness for my military in case somebody comes against us? And you can read it. It says that God punished Israel because David took this census. And you're reading this and you're just like, what? Here's the reality. The same little boy whose voice hadn't changed, who beat a giant was now a king and was beginning to trust more in the strength of his own army than in the power of God. And God said, I have to punish that. That's, this is not about you, David. The Lord himself will fight for you. You just need to be still. Can I tell you that this morning? That's God's, that's God's battle plan for your life. That's God's battle plan for his church. Listen, we are, we're currently looking at every concept of what it means to wage war against our opposition we need to do this and have this and go here and think this and do these things and act this way and and i know i make light of it but come on we really live there and it's the truth we got to post on facebook about it we got to argue with people on facebook about it we got to do and, and that's not the way god does war that's not the way he does it he says if you lean fully into me and put all of your hope and trust in me, I will fight for you. But what happens to Israel? We watch it play out in this sad scene that leads up to where the temple is right now. They started to worship other gods. They started to put other things first. They started to believe in themselves. And the more they pushed themselves away from God, the more unsuccessful they became. Church, God has called us to wage war against the enemy. Can I ask you a question? Think about this for, ju for just a second. God says that we're supposed to be dangerous to the enemy of God. Who is, who's the enemy of God? Satan. Satan. Okay, good answer. I was worried you might say something else. All right. Satan is the enemy of God. God has commissioned us, filled us with his spirit to make us dangerous against the enemy of God. How many of you in here today feel dangerous? How many of you feel like you're a threat to the plans the enemy has for your family a threat to the plans the enemy has for your neighborhood, the threat against your community. More often than not, we just kind of feel like we're in the place of like, I'm just one. What can I do? I'm just one. What can I do? What, what plan do I have? What attack can I put on? What way can I go? What thing can I do? What, what's my next move? Where do I go from here? Can I please just encourage you with the words of Exodus 14, 14? Just be still. And know that he is God. The Lord himself will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you. But it's not going to come through you chasing every other thing in the world. It comes from chasing him. Getting on your knees and crying out to God and drawing close in connection with him. Getting back to the place where, God, you're the only thing that matters. You're the number one thing in my life. You are the joy of my life. You are the thing that gives me strength every day of my life. And as I pursue you and as I draw close to you, I can believe in my heart again that God himself will fight for me. Now, yes, there are realities of life, okay? I'm not saying if you and your spouse are having a really difficult time in your marriage that you should sit at opposite ends of the house and go, the Lord will fight for me. 
Yeah, yeah, you probably need to go to some counseling, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying you should totally avoid doing anything, but, but too often we're leaning into our own abilities, our own agendas, what we think needs to be fixed instead of saying, God, fight for me. Fight for me, God. And we don't believe it anymore. Well, he didn't fight for me this one time. There was one time I thought he would fight for me, but he didn't. I feel like he failed me, or I feel like he let me down. Because he didn't do it my way. He didn't do it in my timing. He didn't do it through my plan. When the reality is that God called us to just lean into him. What is your plan, God? What are you doing? You know, the awesome thing is that when people lean into the presence and power of God, when they lean into relationship with God, when they stop thinking that it's about them and realize it's all about God, God begins to do amazing things. And this is what happened in the book of Ezra. These people, they're just like, we're servants of God. God told us we're going to do it. And the opposition that comes against them, they're like, no, you're not. Who do you think you are? You can't do this. We're telling. They write a letter to the king. King, there's some people here. They're trying to rebuild the temple. You should know about this because it's going to be bad and you you should check it out. Well, here's what happens. The king writes back to them. He has to do a little bit of a search throughout his kingdom and find out, okay, you know, what's going on? Was anything ever said about this? He finds that his predecessor made a decree that this was actually supposed to happen. So here's what he writes back to the opposition, the tattletales who are trying to shut down the move of God. Here's what he writes. Stay away from there. Stay away. Do not disturb the construction of the temple of God. Let it be rebuilt on its original site and do not hinder the governor of Judah and the elders of the Jews in their work. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders of the Jews as they rebuild this temple. It's gonna get so much better. Watch this. You must pay for the full construction costs without delay from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not be interrupted. Give the priests in Jerusalem whatever they need. Whoa. Whoa. We have this moment where Israel is up against opposition. We're going to tell the king, we're going to shut you down. We're going to stop you. You're not going to succeed. All the plans that you have, they're going to come to ruin. Nope, I'm a servant of God, and I sit back, and I believe with all my heart that God himself will fight for me. I just need to be still. And so rather than, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. Every man in Israel, you find yourself a sword or a shovel or a rock or a slingshot or something. We're going to surround this temple, and if they try to stop us, we will not be defeated. No, that's the latest movie you saw somewhere. That's not what happened. They stepped back and they just said, you can try to stop us, but you should know this. That if you do, God himself will fight for us. And when God fights for them, he does something that only he is able to do. Watch this. Only God can turn opposition into an asset. He takes the very people who are opposing the work of God And he flips it and he says, you need to help them, you need to pay for it. What an incredible moment, right? You need to help them, you need to pay for it. In fact, whatever they need, give it to them. Anything they need. And he goes on to describe it. If they need food, if they need animals, if they need wine. I don't know, maybe wine helped with building, I'm not sure. But whatever they need, give it to them. And it wasn't won by raising up an army. It wasn't won by 
sharpening the swords and arming people with pitchforks. It wasn't one through a campaign of surrounding the building and saying, we will not be defeated. It came on the heels of a people who said, if we set back and if we press into the Lord, if we trust him, if we do what he's called us to do, the Lord himself will fight for us. We don't have to do it. We don't have to beat them. We don't have to overcome this opposition. We don't have to destroy anything or anyone. God will do it. Church, I want to introduce you to Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah. Lions don't need your protection. They don't need your protection. He can fight for himself. He can fight for you. God is calling you to a place in your life, in your family, in your community, in your workplace, for us as a church to rebuild this belief in God that supersedes our dependence on self. God, I need you to fight for me. God, I need you to fight for me. I was talking with a few of our men from our men's ministry and this idea came up and I thought it was a very profound thought. I just, I wanna share it with you. Because you know, we read in scripture where it says, no weapon formed against God's people will prosper. We're like, yeah, right? Then we read, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Yeah, right? We get all excited. What in the world does that mean? Let me ask you this. Have you or anyone you've ever heard of been attacked by a gate? I saw a video once. It's the closest I got. It was this dog that was in a kennel and it was trying to push the door open and the door kept flying back and smacking the dog in the face and the dog was getting angry. It was hilarious. That's the closest I got, okay? I don't know of anybody who's ever been attacked by a gate. So what in the world is he talking about? He's saying that even if Satan himself were to try to build a gate between what I have for you and the other side, that that gate would not prevail against you. <laughs> it doesn't matter who comes in opposition to you. It doesn't matter what comes in opposition to you. If I'm the one who said it, the gates of hell themselves would not prevail against you. The Lord himself will fight for you. You just need to be still. The Lord himself will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you. You're not an and. Can I just tell you that this morning? You're not an and. God's like, I've got all my children and Chris. I've got all the promises that I want to give to my people and Chris. You are a blood-bought child of the living God. And the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is inside of you, but he didn't give it to you to wield as a weapon. He gave it to you to fill you with himself because the Lord himself will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you. I know I sound like a broken record here, but church, we've got to get a hold of this because if we're going to rebuild hope in the church and if we're going to rebuild hope in our families and rebuild hope in our communities, it's not going to come from some rally. It's not going to come from some grass movement, whatever. It's not going to come, please hear me, and I know I say this and it frustrates people. It's not going to come from electing somebody else that we like. 
It's going to come from putting Jesus in the place in our lives where he belongs. It's going to come from true, full, complete surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then, and then, stepping back and saying, God, fight for me. When's the last time you asked God to do that? In my marriage, I'm struggling. God, will you fight for me? In my relationships with my children, God, will you fight for me? In my finances, God, will you fight for me? In my job, God, will you fight for me? My broken relationships with family, God, will you fight for me? In my health, God, will you fight for me? It's so foreign to us, we don't, oh, I gotta get another job. That's the financial fix. I gotta go see another doctor. I've gotta go do another thing. I'm not speaking against doctors or jobs. Yes, you gotta go to work tomorrow. You can't quit your job and say, my pastor said, just let the Lord fight for you. Your mortgage company will not be impressed. But you're not an and. You're not an and. God doesn't have promises for his church and you. You are his church. You are his children. You are his promise. You are blessed. God wants to go before you and work miracles through you, but it's not going to be through some new scheme, new idea, new plan, new direction, new thingy, whatever it's going to take. Just step back and say, God, you did it for Israel. Will you do it for me? You fought for them. Will you fight for me? You told them to just be still, that that God himself would fight for them. Will you fight for me? And just begin to believe. Yes. Yes, God will fight for me. He will fight for me. I believe by faith God will fight for me. And guess what? He's the only one who can turn it around. Can you imagine any other way by which the enemies of God would be forced into helping God's people and paying the bill? Can you imagine any other way for the city of Jericho to be defeated and destroyed by the power of God other than displayed by a group of people who just walked around it and blew some trumpets? Can you imagine Pharaoh's army being destroyed and having any other explanation than that God fought for us when the sea covers them over and destroys them over and over and over again? It's God, it's God, it's God. And he makes it known. You put me first, I'll fight for you. You make me second, fight for yourself. That's what you choose, fight for yourself. Church, we gotta put him back where he belongs and let him do some fighting for us again. Will you pray with me? God, as we're in this season of really talking through what it means to be rebuilt as the church of Jesus Christ, a church that is without spot or blemish or wrinkle, a church that is filled with power and moving forward into the world to display the glory and goodness of God. Lord, and in our personal lives, people who don't feel crushed and broken and defeated, but people who realize that we have the power of the living God inside of us. And Lord, we need you to fight for us. But we also confess to you, God, that there have been times when we thought we had to fight for ourselves. That we had to be the ones who came up with the next move, the next thing, the battle plan, the weapon, whatever it was, God, that was gonna help us to overcome what we're facing. God, we lean into you. Will you help us to see just how special it is 
to watch God win victories for us. To step back with no other plausible explanation than to just say God himself did it. It wasn't me. Churches, we're in prayer this morning. I just want to ask you if you're here and you'd say, I'm in a season right now and I've been fighting. But I need God to fight for me. I need God to fight for me. Can I just ask you to slip up a hand? I want to pray for you this morning. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Yep. Quite a few of us. Anybody else? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Can I ask you to stand as we close together in prayer? I want to pray over you. The only other thing worse than being an and is that sometimes Satan tries to say, you're also excluded. God's going to do it for everybody else but you. God's going to win victories and battles for everybody else, but not you. And I just want to encourage you as we pray and we finish out together, and I don't know what's going on in your personal life or what you need God to overcome and fight for, but if you'd believe by faith, that it's God who can do it, that his strength is greater than yours, that the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against you. They won't stand between you and what God has in store because that's the way that God does warfare. So Lord, I just pray right now for every person in this room, those who are watching online, and God, the battles that they're going through right now, The things that they're facing, God, they are very real. Just as the Israelites had to watch an army bearing down on them, had to walk around a physical city of of walls, just as David had to face against Goliath, Lord, we're seeing real and true things that we have to battle against. And God, I just pray that you would bring relief to their exhaustion. Lord, for those who are just so tired of trying to fight it on their own, trying to come up with the answer, the next thing, the next way. God, I pray that you would speak those words from Exodus 14, 14 over our lives, that the Lord himself will fight for you. You just need to be still. Lord, help us to trust you, to lean into your goodness to believe in your miracle-working power in our lives. God, help us to be surrendered, to be fully given over to being servants of God and realizing that when we've given ourselves to this master, he's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of everything. God, fight for your people. Fight for your church. God, forgive us for thinking with weapons of warfare that are earthly to come against the opposition that the church is facing today in the church, out of the church, around the world. God, forgive us for thinking that's the way forward when it's you. Will you fight for us? Will you fight for your people? Will you fight for your own namesake? We give the the battle into your hands, God, and ask you to move miraculously. And I pray that you'd speak encouragement into my friends here who've raised their hand today. That you would encourage them from your spirit to theirs. And just whisper these gentle words, God, in their ears. I'm here. I haven't left you. 
Just remind them, God. Walk beside them. Be with us, Lord, and be glorified. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, God's calling you to be dangerous as he fights for you. Whatever you're facing this week, if Satan tries to tell you, no, not you, no, not you, no, not you, can you just memorize this verse in Exodus 14, 14? The Lord himself will fight for me. But not the, but the Lord himself will fight for me. The Lord himself will fight for me. He'll do it. Lord bless you, love on each other and encourage each other. If you're visiting, we'd love to meet you out in the foyer, but have a wonderful day. Prayer team will be up here in the front. If you need prayer this morning,